Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuckstables? What the fuck heads? You know who you are. Welcome to WTF. I am Mark Marin. How was that for professional? Welcome to the show. I hope you're having a good day. Yeah. All right, look, my, it's morning. I'm doing this a little before I usually do it because I got to travel and uh, I couldn't be more thrilled that my guest today is Mike Myers. Now, Mike Myers, I don't know if you really remember, but uh, Mike Myers was fucking huge and fucking funny and an amazingly unique and talented comedic uh, performer. And he was, he was, he, everything was Mike Myers for a while. I mean, at the time that Mike Myers was on SNL, I wasn't watching as regularly as I did when I was a kid, but it was certainly unavoidable to to reckon with his uh, comedic tour de force on all levels. Uh, Wayne's World and SNL and um, Austin Powers movies. But it, there's one thing you always, that, that is undeniable that from the very first time you ever saw Mike Myers, it's like, holy shit, how this guy gets so fucking funny? Where do they make people like him? How does it happen to be such a unique sort of transcendent comedic talent? And they make them in Canada, apparently. That's where they're made. I got the opportunity to speak to Mike. He doesn't talk much, long form certainly, uh, at all. So I was sort of thrilled at the opportunity. Uh, I know his brother is on Twitter. And um, and I, I go back and forth with his brother occasionally, Paul. And Paul had reached out to me and said his brother kind of wanted to talk, and he'd done a little, done a little uh, brokering, I believe. But also, Mike had this movie out called uh, Supermensch. It's a documentary about Shep Gordon. Now, I, I got this movie, and I had no idea who Shep Gordon was. And even when I started watching the movie, I couldn't quite understand, you, you know, why Mike would choose him as a subject. He's a, a, a music manager that had a profound impact on Mike. For different reasons, but this guy also had a profound impact in the way that mu- music management uh, is done. He he was uh, Alice Cooper's manager and Ann Murray's manager. So so if you can just see the disparity between those two things and try to wrap your brain around how that could happen, and, and in the times that it did happen in the seventies, this guy had a profound impact on Mike's life. And as you move through the film, you realize that the impact was really sort of a, an emotional, psychological, and spiritual impact. That this was sort of a an homage to a guy that had profound um, personal impact on Mike. And it was a very thoughtful movie. And it was not necessarily a funny movie in the way that you expect Mike Myers to uh, to do a funny movie. I think the movie's still out. It's called Supermensch. I think it's still in theaters here in the States. And uh, I guess it's going to be playing in the UK. You can go to Supermensch themovie.com to learn more about it but but what i realized when i was talking to mike is look we're we're both roughly the same age he's had a, a a monstrous career you know with some disappointments but all in all if you really think about um austin powers about wayne's world about snl about shrek uh, a, a, an amazingly huge career and he's consistently uh, delivered the goods but he's a professional dude who is now 50 and thinking about life in a different way, um, and as I as am I now, it's a little different with Mike. Uh, he he just you know he's had a couple of kids in the last few years, and uh, and you, you know you hit this weird age where I'm at now, where you know I don't know what the fuck to do with myself, uh, and I'm getting tired of me, 
and it's it's tricky. So for me to talk to Mike and to see the sort of joy that he has about you know really you know realizing that it's not all about the work that you know there is time for family, there is time for your own personal growth, there's time to to sort of do things and take time away and enjoy and and enjoy your children and all that. I mean, it was very moving to me. But also, it's a completely different life than mine. And I, I still am struggling with this idea that, you know, things are okay. I'm doing okay. I have a, a little money saved. I don't make any time to do anything. And uh, and it's very hard for me to figure out what the hell to do. I don't think kids are in the picture anymore. There was a period there where that was going to happen, and I wanted it to happen, but it couldn't happen in the situation I was in. So I've sort of let go of that situation because I've become cynical about relationships a bit trying to get over that i know they're important i want them to be important but i'm trying to avoid the sadness element of of where i'm at because i want to defend the idea that that my life is valid and that i've done something with it i think i have done something with it but but what do i do now how much more time do i got what am i going to sit around and just you know wonder what's wrong with me am i going to sit around and just dread the next thing because that's what i do Am I going to have relationships that, you know, don't go as deep as they could because I'm afraid? Am I just going to treat my problems as my children for the rest of my life? And my cats are not my children. And believe me, as much as I love Monkey and LaFonda, they're not my children. They're, they're just not. Um, I, 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 I like, it's kind of endearing when people say that, you, you know, your cats are like your children. I'm like, no, they're not really. They're, they're my cats. If they were like children, they'd be severely mentally challenged. There is no uh, 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 emotional or intellectual growth for a cat, you know, after a certain point, which is very early on, they kind of level off and they either become nicer or more ornery or slower, but, uh, but there's no, uh, there's no, there's no, it's, they're not children. And when people say, you know, it's so nice that you have two cats, you know, that, that nice is so close to sad sometimes, you know, and I, I put some things together, like, I, it's very hard at certain moments where I'm laying in bed. I got monkey on one side, I got LaFonda on the other side. And I say, uh, I say, uh, well, I guess it's just us. Yeah, that's cute, but it's hard for me to spin it into a positive thing sometimes. I got to be honest with you. You know, I, I think I, I need a little more. I actually said to monkey, I looked at him, I said, you're getting old, buddy. You're getting old. Didn't think anything of it. It's a cat. And then I think I put it together because like two days later, he... He shit on my shag carpet while maintaining eye contact with me. And uh, I realized, uh, all right, this is for that comment. I understand. I guess I deserve that. But quite honestly, you know, if you're shitting on the carpet, that is a sign that perhaps you're aging. I didn't rub it in. Didn't rub it in. See, the fact that I'm thinking this way and having these type of conversations, even in my head and sometimes aloud with my cat, is cute, but not necessarily, uh, you know, a celebration, if you dig what I'm saying. Not necessarily a celebration. I played some guitar the other night. God damn it, I like doing that. Brendan Small, who I love, uh, did a night over at the Baked Potato here. I picked it up the last minute, so I didn't tell you guys about it, but it's basically sort of like, uh, you know, the people tell stories and then they play. And they're amazing musicians. The guys he puts together are like top-notch noodlers. Uh, just great musicians. So he said, you want to come play? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I want to play. So I went and rehearsed with him. We did a Peter Green Fleetwood Mac tune, Drifton. And I pulled out my my old Strat. It's not that old. Look, I have no collectible guitars, but it's an 86 American Strat, and it's what I play. I, I, I try not to get too attached to guitars because then, you know, something happens to them, you're sad. And I've already got enough invested in the cats and my uh, anxiety. 
I had a fucking great time. I had a fucking, to the point where I'm like, why don't I do this always? Why am I not doing this always? So I like doing that. I know that. All right, it is my honor and pleasure, and I mean that sincerely because this is a, an honorable and pleasurable guy to, uh, to go now to my talk with uh, Mike Myers at his office in Manhattan. <laughs> All right, so, okay, so let's not lose this thought. Okay. The difference or the similarities of comedy acting and regular acting. This is my non-scientific yeah, not, opinion. Not looking for science. Okay, so um, it's about commitment. So in both comedy acting and in dramatic acting, you commit to the reality. Right. But just like gold is never 100% pure, it's 99.00000 whatever. Yeah. One or whatever. Right. The quality of comedy acting, for my money, is how little of the necessary impurity there is in the comedic acting. So someone like Phil Hartman, right. you see him completely bought into the reality. Yeah. But every now and then, the impurity, if you will, is, is in how quickly he changes from one emotion to another. Right. And strange emphasis, hither and yon. But, but you need the impurity for it to, to work. Yes, but it's, gold cannot exist without impurity. Exactly. So if you're too pure, like there are moments like... It's not funny anymore. Uh, well, like Daryl Hammond is very close mm -hmm. in terms of like, it's almost a perfect imitation as opposed to an impression. Like yes. it, there, the impurity when you're doing characters or, or I think impressions is that mm. you have to find that one thing that becomes a, a quirk. Yeah, and you have to heighten and explore right. it. Right, but to a cap and to to a right. to a to a yeah. floor. If you yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, someone like Phil or someone like um, Alec Guinness, yeah, or uh, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. Now, somebody like Peter Sellers for somebody like you, I imagine was, and I'm sure you've probably talked about it before, uh, a pretty big influence. Yeah, the biggest. The biggest. Yeah. And he was, but he, he, it seems to me that you uh, strike me as a more. Uh, a controlled person than him. He seemed to be somewhat uh, balls to the wall out of his mind sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know to what extent it's legend and lore, right. you know, that it's... I mean, from a, I've read everything. If it gets too horrible, you right, I, I don't read it, you know. You don't want the sordid details of your hero? Well, it's, it's irrelevant to the experience, you right. know. It's yeah. like um, you either enjoyed the experience or you didn't. Of the book or what he does? Yeah, of what he does. Well, then if don't read was, any books. I, but there are some okay. facts and figures right. that are, are kind of interesting. You know, like he, he was in the Royal Air Force. My dad was in the Royal Air Force. You uh -huh. know what I mean? He's, yeah. He plays drums. I play drums, you know? Yeah. He started on a, on a show uh, called uh, The Goons, yeah. which was a, a weekly kind of Saturday Night Live type show when I was on a Saturday Night Live type show. Right, you know the coincidences I mean? abound. The things that I relate sure, to of sure. him abound, right. you know yeah. what I mean? All right, so your brother, Paul, is a musician. Yeah. Do you have other siblings? Yeah, brother Peter. You have, there's three of you. Yeah, he works at Sears in Toronto, but he's a fantastic poet, and for a long time his name was Peter Lizard. You're all creative people, yeah. all three brothers. Uh, yeah, and I created mom. She went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. My parents met in amateur dramatics. Sold your father? What was he? He sold uh, encyclopedias. Really? He he originally was a tire technician in Liverpool. Thought he had a job in Buffalo. Got to Buffalo with my mom. So they're from Britain, Liverpool. Yeah. Talk like that, I'm like yo. 
So you so you ended up in Canada. They yes. ended up in Canada, but they're they both did. from Britain. Yes, from Liverpool. I was born in Toronto. Yeah, they huh. moved in '56. I was born in '63. So um, they were both. They both had aspirations to be actors. Yeah, and yeah. it was highly, highly uh, valued in my house. In fact, I, I've always loved architecture. That's been sort of architecture and French New Wave film were my passions. Like 400 Blows, yeah. La Comme Lucienne. Uh, Breathless. Where did that start hitting you in high school? Yeah, Toronto. But Toronto, we have more cinemas per capita than any other city except for Bombay. We're Mumbai now. So you were exposed to that stuff as a teenager? We had this thing called the Bloor Cinema Group. It was all these different second-run theaters that you could see everything. And uh, So I just saw all the classics. And there's another thing called Cineform or Chiniform. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a place called The Funnel where I saw experimental stuff so for me it was like uh, I go see uh, Scorpio Rising right. the Kenneth, the Kenneth Anger, Anger movie, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. then <laughs> yeah. Bruce Connors Report <laughs> then I'd go see Nook, Nook of the North yeah. and then uh, full history the full arc from the Nook of the North to Kenneth Anger you could see everything and, and how old were you when you were doing this though? When 11 you, and 12 come on you were watching yeah. 400 Blows when you were 11 yes and, that, and it, and yeah. who was taking you? Did, was it your older brother? I mean, it was how did Paul. You... Paul and I would go. Um, Is Peter he would older too? Yeah, I'm the youngest of three. So Paul was like 15. Yeah. Okay. So um, he was then. Then a night, I'm. I was 14 when. Well, I was 13 when punk rock happened. Okay. Because we got, you know, we got records from from England in 1976. Yeah. And uh, I went to England in 1977 by myself. Because I, I did TV commercials, so I could afford to go on Do you have family there? Yeah. yeah. I have family in St. Albans, and in Liverpool, and Manchester, Eccles, Ramsbottom. Yeah. So you, had to, you could just Southard. go and, <laughs> and stay with family. Yes. The, the year I after Punk Rock. Yeah, right. yeah. So I'm there, and all of a sudden, it's God Save the Queen, and The Clash, and Susie Sue. And I think we're exactly the same age. I'm 51. I'm May 50, 25th. 50. 51, September 27th. Yeah. You're lucky to have an older brother because, like, you know, knowing Paul, the, yeah. uh, the little bit that I do, he's such a music head. He's so, an everything head. He has. So he pulled you through. I mean, he was uh, your gateway. Dude, I've said it many times. Yeah. No one should underestimate the absolute leg up having a brother who's cool. No. An I've, older brother. Yeah. I had to go find guys. Yeah. <laughs> to show well, me People things. used to come to our house. My best friend uh, would be my best friend for 42 years. Wow. Um, we played on the same soccer team, yeah. same you know, yeah. hockey and whatnot. He used to come to our house and, and just hang out, hang out, and listen to Paul's listen record. to see what Paul bought from the record peddler downtown in Toronto. And so he'd go he, home. Japanese imports. Oh my God! Green vinyl. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I think you're, you're so fortunate because I mean, in, in some ways, that sort of like set the standard in your head. It created your whole aesthetic understanding of what was good. Well, and that that it was important to yeah. uh, offer value to people that pop music does matter, you know, and film matters and art matters. Our house was like Parliament, you know. When you see C-SPAN, it's like answer the question, resign, shame, <laughs> just constantly talking. I didn't even realize that performing was above the table because we used to just sit around the table and just crack wise. And but your parents were very sophisticated with arts as well. Yeah, well, my, you know, examples. My dad was very. When 2001 came out, my yeah. dad loved Kubrick. And when 2001 came out, he wanted to take each of us alone. Yeah. Because he says, this is the first time that movies have turned into art. <laughs> this is an artistic experience, not just a cinematic experience. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, <laughs> fantastic. 
So and he took you all separately? Yeah, I, he didn't take me, strangely enough. But he took Peter and, and Paul separately. They didn't, he didn't want them to be together. No, he wanted to, each of them to have... My dad's big thing was he didn't want any of us to feel that somebody was special. He wanted us all to be treated the same, you know huh. what I mean? Yeah. And so but he left you out. Well, that often happened. I never, I never went to a hockey game with him either. So where was the equanimity with, uh, with you? How did you get left behind? Uh, I don't know. I was, uh, <laughs> as my brothers would say, oh, Michael's revolting. Oh, really? You were the, the angry of, kid? No, just, just, I was a punk rocker at 14. So, you know. Oh, so you bought the whole thing. You, you okay. came. Yeah, as that, that sad Canadian punk rocker. Who's, but you came back from England and you were, you yeah. bought the boots. Yeah. And you had everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. It, uh, Doc Martens, uh, drain pipes. I wore suits all the time. Cut my hair like the guy in the jam, uh-huh. uh, like Paul Weller. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, got a sliding accent, you know. <laughs> even though I'm from Toronto, you know. Yeah. But you were entitled to it. Sounding a bit like um, yeah. Paul now, Paul McCartney. But you were entitled to it. Your parents were British. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> that what I, I claimed it. I am a citizen by dint of my parents. I have three citizenships. You do Canada by birth. England by heritage and America by choice and grace. So you were acting in television commercials at 11? Eight. Eight. Gilda Radner played my mom in a TV commercial. Really? Before she was, uh, obviously before. She was at Second City and she'd been in a show Godspell with... um, Catherine O'Hara? And Martin Short and Eugene uh, Levy. Uh Uh-huh. And um, so she did this commercial and she played my mom and I fell in love with her. It was a four-day shoot. And at the end of it, I cried and my brothers called me Sucky Baby. So it'd be like, hey, Sucky Baby, <laughs> your girlfriend's on this stupid show on Saturday. It doesn't even have a name. So you had a crush on her that oh, lasted. Yeah. Oh, God, I loved her so much. She was so funny and just beautiful. And so, What was the commercial for again? Uh, British Columbia Hydroelectricity. I ended up getting cut out of it. Oh, but you met Gilda. I met Gilda. It was fantastic. What other commercials did you do? Uh, Kit Kat, Apple Jack, Sunlight, BC Hydro, Datsun, Kmart Shoes, Wrigley Spearmint Gum. Big ones. Yeah. So you I, made some money as a kid. I did, yeah. And I, what, what did you, did your parents stash that away? Or? Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, one time we went to England and, yeah. uh, with the whole family, and I was like, wow, this is great. With my dad's job and my mom's job, it's great. The whole family can afford. And then on the last day, my relative says, all right, we want to thank Eric for coming over. We've had a great time, and we want to thank Michael for paying for it. And I was like, what? I didn't pay for it. And my dad says, you did now. And you're bloody happy about it. And I'm not happy about it. Can I talk to you outside with that Liverpool scary face? And you're like, no, I'm good. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Liverpool scary face. He's going to give me a Liverpool kiss. Just, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, so they used it well. Yeah, I think so. Connected you with your no, family. No, I was happy. What did you done in high school uh, outside of commercials? I did the workshops at Second City, and I did commercials. And then I would I would do the character Wayne Campbell in, in front of punk bands. I would do little comedy things in front of punk so you bands. So you had sort of a stand-up act. I did, but I just was looking for a stage. You know, they always says, you know, uh, theater is two planks and a passion, you know. Right. And I just gave a commencement speech and to Canadian performers, and I said... Then go to Canadian Tire and buy yourself a couple of planks, you know? Yeah. Don't, don't wait to be discovered. Discover yourself. But you were doing Don't characters. wait to be hired. Right. Hire yourself. Right. So I started the Comedy Store Players in London that became the Whose Line Is It Anyways cast. It's the, now the longest running play with the same cast in the history of theater. You, you started that when you were 18? 
when I was 19, I'd just gone, just gone over to England, and um, I didn't have any uh, prospects. But what was the evolution of it? So you're opening for punk bands in Canada mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. The, with one character? Uh, two characters. I did Dieter and I did Wayne. So you had those that long? Yeah. And Dieter comes directly from the, you know... Klaus the, Nomi. Who's, who is who? Klaus Nomi was a German performance artist. Uh, if you YouTube... Uh, is it TVC one five? The, yeah. B- the David, David Bowie, Bowie song? song. Yeah, yeah. When he was on Saturday Night Live, he yeah. had two backup singers, and one of them was one of them was Klaus Nomi. And I went, "What the is yeah. that? That's fantastic. That is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> and so I had never seen German TV, but I thought, "I bet it's like that," you know? Right. But it's it's also rooted in all that stuff your brother showed you or opened yeah, yeah. your mind to. All the because you had to be sensitive to it enough to mimic it. Well, you know, one of the things of growing up in Canada is yeah. it's, it's a country without. Uh, an indigenous you know instrument right without a, a cuisine mm-hmm. um, so we don't you know no damn banjo is the name of the book I would write about Canada we don't have a seventh fleet right um, like we're super happy when you know the launch boat works you know and the plane works it's like <laughs> come on really? no, seriously yeah you know my joke is a Canadian space shuttle is an ice fishing hut you know yeah. but we're a very peaceful people um <laughs> It's a very sane place to grow up. So, all right, so you're doing these characters. So let's, yeah. And how were they going over? I mean, they, they, they were really immediately, well. immediately identified, like the people at the punk rock show sort of got the Dieter thing? Yeah, well, they got the Dieter thing. They got the Wayne guy more because uh, I'm from a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. Mm-hmm. It's very flat. It's, um, it's a lot of uh, plazas yeah. and uh, uh, car- factory carpet outlets. So it's suburban enough for that character that could be American or Canadian. But it's a little it? Soviet. In fact, they call it oh. Scarberia. Oh, really? And uh, now they call it Scarlem. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the, a lot of government housing was sent out to this suburb. It's in a perfect grid. And so my, my production company is called No Money Fun Films because I never had any money growing up. But I, I always wanted to do and make stuff. So I made Super 8 films. Um, I wrote songs on a close and play, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, Peter Paul and I used to write comedy sketches all the time. Um, we had a, com- a, a music group called My Three Sons, and, and uh, we just did stuff. Uh-huh. We just put on shows, you know, it was fun. It's a hyper-creative environment, all you guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was no careerists necessarily in the bunch. No, there. no. I never... I'm shocked at how kind of mainstream things... I was shocked and pleased and grateful and all of those things, but it wasn't predicted. Um, there's no career planning. Right. There's, uh, and you were tending, leaning towards something a little more esoteric, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to be John Cassavetes. Right. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to create a cinematic movement called Canadian Neorealism. Oh, really? You had it planned? That oh, was yeah. The, that was the agenda? Well, there was already a couple movies. One called um, Going Down the Road about two Newfies mm-hmm. who go to Toronto to try and make it big. And um, The Rowdy Man. There's been some films. Uh, but the, the fact that, you know, you grew up in this suburb, you thought made um, Wayne Campbell more accessible to, to, to the audiences? That it was more understandable to punk rock audiences initially? Because they were, they were the people who were tormenting the punk rockers. Okay, so, right. Okay, even in Canada. Yeah, yeah. They were called Sasks. Okay. For Sasquatch. So townies here, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Just, you know, rock townies. Yeah. So they were the old guard. 
Yeah. You know, the, yeah, music sucks. Get you guys it, yeah. are pussies. You suck. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Grow your hair, punker. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so that's... Okay, I get it now. So when did you... Well, when did you start at the Second City? Second City was um, my last day of high school yeah. in Toronto. My last exam was Concepts and Literature at 9 o'clock. I auditioned for Second City at 12, and I was hired at 3. In the pool of people to, be, to audition and to be hired, because Alan Gutman let me stay in the program even though I didn't pay. Because you're so good. I, I don't... Just say it. You say it. You were so good. They were like, we can't deny this kid. He's oh, talented. I don't, I don't know about that. We can't. <laughs> this guy's a genius. We got to have him in here. Well, he was very, very supportive. Okay. Which I never forget people who are yeah. believers. You know yeah. what I mean? Sure. Um, Is he still around? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but I, I, I think he's at teaching at Humber College in, oh, yeah? in Toronto. Uh, but uh, if he's hearing this, I just want to say thank you once again. And so when do you go? So you, draw, you joined Second City, and that's before you moved to England. Correct. And I okay. did that for a year and a half. The main then, stage. No, I was in the touring company. Oh, so wow. So we'd go all around Oh, so you Canada. did that. Yeah, yeah. I was in buses and oh, you did the only like, person listening to The Clash and being, but you had turn to, that shit off. I've talked to dudes. This is the only band that matters. <laughs> I mean, I talked to guys who did that in the States. And, yeah. You know, it's pretty, it can get pretty gnarly. So you're doing shows. Yeah, but in cold. This yeah. The thing, too. Like Newfoundland, you go up there to do went shows? Went to Newfoundland. Uh, went Winnipeg. To Nova Scotia, The Peg. The Peg. Uh, yeah. Swift Current, Speedy Creek. Uh-huh. Um, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge. And you just Nelson, did. And you did improv. Vancouver, Montreal, Quebec. Yeah. All improv with characters. Uh, it was a set show. It was. And then at the end was the improv. Okay. And I was easily by far, the average age was 32 and I was 19. And were you, which, so how many characters did you have them? You had Dieter, you had Wayne. I probably had about 14 characters. Oh, really? Yeah. How many of them stayed the whole course in some version or another mm, throughout SNL? Probably about seven of them. It's yeah. wild, right? Yeah. It's so wild when I hear that, that these characters have existed. They pre-exist SNL, and then they come to life, and they just stay with you. Yeah. I mean, I had always done an impression of Lorne Michaels. Before you even worked there? Yeah, because he was on a show called the um, Hart and Lorne Tea for Terrific Hour. You remember that, or you watched footage of it? No, I used to he... watch it. It was Re really funny. Lorne was really funny. He was in a comedy team, basically. Yeah, yeah. Hart and Lorne. And you remember that? Of course, well, yeah. you're, But you were like... Well, we were culture vultures, dude. You but know, you were eight. By the way, there's tons of teacher strikes growing up. <laughs> so, you know... And your brothers were watching basement. that stuff, too. Yeah. When did you have your first Lorne impression? At 10? 10, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working, your, working your whole life. I have been, yeah. Well, I make stuff. So, all right. So, you go to England. Mm. Before you go to England, though, you meet the kids in the hall because I talked to Kevin yeah. recently, and yeah. he said that you were very close to working with them. Yes, yeah. Uh, one of the that's one of the my thing I'm most proud of. I, I used to improvise with them. I was at Second City. Yeah. And I would go backstage with my Second City friends. This is when I was in the um, main stage company. Uh huh. So I I went to England. Uh, so I got hired for the touring company. I went to England. I moved back to Canada. What did you do in England? I was in a comedy double act with a guy named Neil Malarkey, and that's where I started the Comedy Store Players. Okay. The Comedy Store is a place in England? It's a it's place a, it's in a Leicester a Square. Club. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been in there. Um, but there's a, there's a comedy store. I didn't start the comedy store. That was this other dude. Um, but I said, you guys don't have an improv night. And so me and these other actors formed this troupe. And I, the thing that I made money doing was teaching improv, you know? 
Because you come from a second city background and you knew it all. Yeah, I, 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 I knew all the games. I, I was a real devotee of improv. I remember Foley one time, after I was on Saturday Night Live, we went to see an improv troupe and, I, and they were going to invite us up. Yeah. And Dave said, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I was like, what? <laughs> it's a chance to, to play. It's a chance to do improv. He goes, I think most of improv could do with a rewrite. <laughs> and I said, you can't say that. And I was like, he's right. <laughs> so you do that, and you taught improv. You started that show there, and that became Whose Line Is It Anyways? Is that what you said? The, the, I didn't start Whose Line Is It Anyways, but, but that group of people became oh, they, Whose Line Is It Anyways. That's, that's amazing. Um, you're part then, of this weird history, uh, I, I, unknown comedy history. It's very weird. And then when it came to uh, New York, I had just gotten on the cast of Saturday Night Live, and I was with uh, John Stewart. John Stewart and I both auditioned. For the American Whose Line Is It Anyways. We didn't get it. Before SNL? After SNL. Really? I just thought I would do that as well. I but didn't, you were probably a contractually, I, You just wanted to... I never felt made. I always right. felt like I was going to get fired every week. But, All right, so you come back to Toronto after England. Yeah. And you're... Find out my dad is not well, oh. which was the big decision to move back to Canada. He had Alzheimer's, uh-huh. early Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. And uh, then I went to Chicago Second City for a bit, and then I came back who was down there then when you went there uh bonnie hunt uh-huh. um farley was just coming up uh-huh. um favreau was there he was on the door i actually knew him yeah. i was good friends with favreau still am friends with favreau um it was, it was an interesting time my dad was ill so i was very not happy right um and i knew he's not gonna really make it <clears throat> i was very sad to leave my comedy double act with neil malarkey uh, he and I rewrote So I Married an Axe Murderer together, mm-hmm. and he's in it. Uh, he's also in Austin Powers 1 and Austin Powers 3. Um, he's just a hilarious, great guy, and I, we just keep trying to work, work together. Stuff. But now we both have kids. It's very hard to do anything, you know? Sure. So your dad was ill in 88. Ill in 88. And how long did he hang out for? Uh, till 91. So oh, yeah. he got very ill. Then I came back to Second City, Toronto for the 15th anniversary of Second City, Toronto, because mm-hmm. Second City, Toronto was um, a franchise of Second City, Chicago. Right. And uh, Pam Thomas, who was Dave Thomas's wife, yeah. who was also the producer of The Kids in the Hall. Right. And Martin Short saw me, and Dave Foley saw me at this anniversary show. And it was in two parts, you know, so the first act, in intermission second act so after the first intermission it was all famous people like martin short and blah 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 and i just thought what am i doing here you know yeah yeah i feel like an idiot i just happened to on a technicality be an alumni because i was at the chicago second city just transferred down yeah and so i was downstairs in the bathrooms you know where the cast bathrooms are and i was like this and i was i had that kind of i'm gonna cry feel because i just felt like an idiot and fully went what's going on dude i said I have to do this sketch, this Wayne Campbell sketch, and they don't know who I am. I just feel like an idiot. Up there, he goes, he grabbed me. He said, "Dude, it's gonna kill." <laughs> I went, "What?" He goes, "No, it's gonna kill. You're gonna steal the show, dude. You're gonna totally steal the show." So I went out and I stole the show. <laughs> I went out. It was like I started in the house, you know, yeah. uh, heckling this gal who's playing my girlfriend yeah. in the sketch, and it's this. And the sketch just exploded, and cheer stomps, whistles, wow. standing ovation, and then everything I was in was a standing ovation. So you do this thing where you killed, but that you already knew the kids by the time you... 
Yes, that's right. Because you were at Second City and you'd go watch them and you're like, this is, this is the art. I would come back to Second City and I'd go, I have seen the future and it's the kids in the hall. Right. When I saw their pilot, yeah. Dave said, you want to come over to my house and see the pilot? I got nervous because I thought, what if it's really good? Yeah. You know? And That's I, weird because most, most of the time you get nervous because it's bad and you're going to be in the position to compliment somebody. I know, but I just thought the kids in the hall were so great. They couldn't I, fuck I, up. Right. No, I looked yeah. up to them. I was like, yeah. you're doing the work I want to do, guys. Right. And still are. Like, I, I have mad, mad respect for, for, the, for the kids. Yeah. And I would improvise with them all the time. And I really loved it because the, one of the things that I love is comedy where comedy hadn't existed before. Right. Subjects that were not typically comedic subjects. One of the things about Python that I love, that's why I'm going over to see Python on Friday. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see that Python show in London. Yeah. Is to pay respects to, you know, their... They're the Beatles of comedy, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, you know, they're definitely on the periodic table of elements. Yeah. You know, Pythonium yeah. is definitely there. Sure. And um, they would find comedy where comedy traditionally had not existed. Right. So you had a lot of respect for the kids, and you go over there, and you're sitting with Dave, and you see the pilot. Yeah, and I go into a plumbation, and I go, that's it. Close the patent office. Stick yeah. a fork in it. It's done. You yeah. guys, you bastards, you've done it. You've done it, you bastards. <laughs> yeah. And I went into a existential funk. You did? Yeah, and Dave said, I'm so happy that you're depressed. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, really, I can't tell you, because I thought you were going to be like, oh, that's pretty good, but <laughs> yeah. wow, I guess it must be good. You, you look oh, suicidal. Great. I'm getting sharp objects out of your hand. <laughs> I said, dude, it's just you did it. Like, every... It's got a punk rock feel to it. You know what I mean? The interstitial music is ridiculously cool, and the uh-huh. Super 8 interstitials uh-huh. are fantastic. They nailed it. Oh, it's fantastic. And so then I thought, oh, well, I had my chance to be in the kids in the hall. So I go back for the 15th anniversary of Second City. Right. And that's when he saw me mm-hmm. and said, go out there, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought I got nothing to lose. Because I've always, I've never thought that I was going to be discovered. I just didn't think that. I just thought I would be somebody who's a hard worker. Um, and for me, things started to happen once I completely gave up the concept of being discovered. Absolutely. And I, yep. in essence, discovered what I wanted to do. Right. And, and that's, that would be my advice to young performers is don't want to be famous. Want to be legendary. Right. But in many ways, fame is the industrial disease of creativity. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a sludgy byproduct of making things. Right. And it feels great. Right. For a while. For a while. Yeah. And it, but it didn't bring my dad back from the dead. And didn't... And was your dad already gone by the time you did that? Yeah. No, not the, my dad died in November 1991, but his personality had left his right. body from Alzheimer's. So right. he was... It was tough. I mean, as things were taking off, I would head up to Toronto. He burned himself in a bath, which was horrific. And uh, he just didn't know. He just didn't know. It was very, very tough. It Ugh. was, and it, it really. I mean, I I had a real "What's it all about, Alfie?" moment after Wayne's World came out, because he died November twenty second, nineteen ninety one. The movie came out February fourteenth, nineteen ninety two. Spread his ashes on the Mersey in Liverpool, as per his requests, in June, June I think, June mm-hmm. of 1992. And then I just put on weight. I put like 30 pounds. I'd never had a weight problem. And then mm-hmm. I just was like, 
I'm just not here. I just wasn't here. That's the grief. You're just eating the feelings. And, yeah, because I didn't have a yeah. glossary of terms for it. Right. And uh, it's been, it still hurts. I mean, it's, uh, the birth, the one that got me recently is the birth of my second daughter, yeah. April 11th, Sunday. And uh, it was tough, dude. I mean, I was in the ho hospital room. And that one got me more even than Spike, which yeah. is named after my dad. My dad's name was Spike, you know. That he's not here to see Yeah. Her. Yeah, it, yeah. it was sort of like, I know he would have wanted me to have two kids. He loved kids. He was, yeah. a, great, he was a great dad. Yeah, um, he liked little girls like the the yeah. because he had three boys. Right, so right. It was right. always a treat. It was always a treat to see yeah. you know cousins and stuff. Right, right. And he was he was alive when you had the big break. Yeah, but he, he didn't really. Not, he was. He did vacant. see me on stage at Second City, which was fantastic, and he saw me in London. Oh, okay, on stage, uh -huh. but he was heckling. Oh, was yeah, he was saying things like, oh, the rest of you, get off the stage. Michael's the only funny one. <laughs> really? Yeah, so it's one thing to have Alzheimer's, <laughs> which is, you know, rough. Yeah. But he was such a shameless homer, like yeah. such a shameless believer in me. Yeah. So the truth that came out was, look, he's got a spark. The rest of you are just going through the motions. <laughs> Super specific heckles. You don't even know what you're doing, do you, mate? <laughs> That's great. Let Michael speak. That's he old. takes the scene forward. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Such hilariously specific. I told the cast, my dad has Alzheimer's. He's going to say something. And unfortunately, he also is eloquent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, and it might that's hurt a little bit because oh, that's, part of it's going to be a little true. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. So that night, though, that was it. So you didn't audition. You got discovered. I got recommended. To Lauren. To Lauren, yeah. I, I did the show, and I did the last improv of this show. Yeah. With Martin Short, we did this whole thing. Because Martin Short, they give a hard time because he, he's... I see that the tongue is in the cheek, but name drops. Mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So he did this thing called freeze tag at yeah. the end of the show. And I had steadily started to win over the crowd because like, of the Wayne sketch and yeah. this other thing. And so we were in this scene together, this improv scene, and I'd go, Marty, do you remember that time we are at Liza Minnelli's house and drinking white Puerto Rican rum? And Warren came over, Warren Beatty, and it was this whole thing. Of, yeah. And Dusty was there, Dustin Hoffman. And then he did his riff, and we did this for like 15 minutes. And uh -huh. it was like, the crowd went crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it was just one of those things. Somebody else did another improv. Now, Del Close had started the improv talking about Reagan had just been assassinated. That's yeah. how long ago it was. Right. And didn't get killed. And his theory was that he could only be, couldn't be killed by conventional weapons. Right. To kill Reagan, you would need yeah. a silver bullet. Right. And so in the freeze tag, somebody had their hand pointed out like this. And I went freeze. And I said, all right, Mr. Reagan, this time I got the silver bullet. Yeah. Bang. Lights went out. Place went shithouse. Good callback. Yeah, but I was just in a flow state. Sure. I wasn't like, how do I get the callback? No, right, right, just, right. Yeah. I was just yeah. loving it. Right. You know, having a great time. I go upstairs and I don't know anybody, right? Because they're all the famous people. Right. Like Michael Keaton and blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? Blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all these famous people come to the show and all the SCTV cast. And I'm in the lineup being congratulated by everybody. Now, at halftime, I thought I was out. But Foley was so gracious to go, out? What are you kidding? It's just starting. They haven't seen Wayne's World yeah, yet, yeah. which is so lovely. Yeah. And then there's like 
five flights of stairs to where you eat dinner. And at the bottom I hear, kid, kid, kid. And it's Michael Keaton. He yeah. runs up all the way up these five flights of stairs uh-huh. and says, you are great, man. You are fantastic. You, big things are happening for you. I was like, what the hell happened? It's just like, bang. You know? Yeah, yeah. And everybody in the lineup was like, hey, Mike, do you know who that is? I said, yeah, it's Michael Keaton. He's yeah. like, that's pretty good, Mike. Yeah. Then I went and sat by myself far away from everybody because I didn't know anybody. And all of the cast came and joined my table. Wow. And then, then two days later, I got a call from Lauren Michaels. And what was that call? I got a call and somebody says, is this Mike Myers? And I thought, oh, I was in Chicago. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And I thought it was like immigration or something. Yeah, Even yeah, all yeah. my papers are always fine. Right. And they said, uh, will you hold for Lauren Michaels? And I thought, oh, this is Paul. Fantastic. Yeah. Paul yeah. Mike. And he's like, uh, is this Mike? <laughs> yeah. Lauren. Um, listen, I'm hearing things about you that are good. And I'm like, what, what the hell? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I was by myself. and nobody did it. Like, what? Yeah. Um, would you be interested in being on Saturday Night Live? I was like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, I had not seen the show because I had a top-loading VCR, and I would tape the Leaf game. Yeah. And you only got two hours, right? So the yeah. Leaf game went from 8 to 10. Yeah. And Saturday Night Live goes from 11.30 to 1 o'clock. But you saw it when you were a kid. You knew the I show. I did, but then I lived in England for three years. So, so you, lived, you didn't know what's going I on. I hadn't seen the show in seven years. Right. Because I couldn't afford since like the second cast since like the like, like, yeah second cast you know, running around Bill Murray right, so right. I was like oh man yeah what, what's going on so I li- I mean I come back yeah and I get on the show and somebody I'm walking with Dana and people are looking at Dana on the street like oh my god there's Dana Carvey and I'm going I felt like you know you know Rip Van Winkle right right yeah, yeah. people are going isn't that special yeah and I said to Dana I said dude, why are they saying isn't that special to you? Yeah. And he's like, come on. <laughs> and you really don't no idea. I had no idea. I hadn't seen it. So you come down to New York. How long after the phone call? So after the phone call, three weeks later, I go down to New York City. I'd never been to New York City. Mm-hmm. I go over the bridge and it makes me cry, the 59th Street Bridge, because yeah. I love New York. I love London. Yeah. I'd always loved New York, but I had said to myself, I'm not going to go to New York unless I'm invited for something. So this was it. Yeah. I got invited for something. Right, right, right. Go over that bridge. It was magical. You just can't believe it. Yeah. The only other place that I've approached that's made me cry is Venice. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe it. It's so beautiful. I got to see that. Oh, it's fantastic. So you go to 30 Rock. And, and I was supposed to have a meeting with him at 1 o'clock. I don't actually get in to see him until 1 o'clock in the morning. So I'm that outside. You waited? I had three full meals. Uh-huh. And, you know... <laughs> Yeah, and I just waited, and I just go. Uh, am I am I going to see him today? Oh yeah, yeah, you definitely see him. And I come in, and uh, Lauren is sitting at his desk, and the window behind him is of the Empire State Building, which I've never seen at night. At night, mm-hmm. and he's talking, and it's Lauren Michaels. You yeah. know, I did a project on him in grade eight of famous Canadians. Yeah, and I'm just sitting, I'm just not believing. So I walk in, and there's two chairs, and he said, "Have a seat." And I said, which one? And he goes, which one do you think? And I said, which is the one that's going to get me hired? And he laughed. And the other producer was like, oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> right, like, right. He likes me. He don't like yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just felt the... the who was the other guy? Uh, Jim Downey. Okay. Who I'm now fantastically in was love with. Was he the with. head writer then? Yeah, yeah, he was the head writer. Yeah. I think he wanted Ben Stiller, mm-hmm. who was hired at the same time I was. 
And, and I don't blame him because Ben is fantastically talented and he was so fantastic on the show, but he left after five shows because I think he smartly recognized that he's complete. He didn't need right. to have been on Saturday Night Live. Right. It was a very interesting thing to watch somebody who had a lot of confidence, mm-hmm. and rightly so, and I who had no confidence except my only confidence is that you have to focus on the material. You better make it good. So Dennis Miller sort of hazes us. He comes over and goes, Ben, are you my man, Ben? Right? And he goes, Dennis, why are you saying that? Why don't you stop it? Are you my man, Ben? And he, and he goes, no, Dennis, I'm not your man. Mikey, to me, are you my man? Yep, I'm your man. <laughs> Dennis, I'm totally your man. In fact, I'll go even one further. I'm your bitch. I'm your bitch. <laughs> and he goes, ha. Yeah, Mikey gets it. Ben doesn't. <laughs> and that was it. Because I just was like, I'm stupid new guy. Yeah, you're, you're ready. Stupid, Let's go. You're right. I'm stupid new guy. Who was so? Who was the cast when you got there? It was. Uh, well, first of all, I hadn't seen any of them. Right. And so when I got on the show, I was I went into my next existential funk because I was like, Phil Hartman is the greatest character comedian I'd ever seen in my life. I put him up there with Sellers. Yeah. His instrument and take on stuff, he became my hero, he became yeah. my mentor. So even as I got more successful in the show, at the read-through table, you move closer to the host as you get more successful. And every season, I got called into the room by the, this one producer, uh, Audrey, Audrey Dickman, mm-hmm. Per Dickman, and she would say, um, spoken to Lorne, and he's decided to move you up the table. And I said, no thanks. She'd go, no, I don't think you understand. New York is all about real estate. You've been asked to move up the table. And I said, no, I want to stay near Phil. Phil doesn't move. Yeah. Yes, we don't understand why Phil doesn't move. <laughs> I said, I don't either, but I want to sit beside Phil. You yeah, know? yeah. So I sat beside Phil and just watched him. And whatever he did, I did. If mm-hmm. he prepared, I prepared, you know. And really hard worker, but made it look easy. Yeah. Anything that he was given, he would knock out of the park. And you know when people go, like, somebody's name is Lou, and they go... Lou. Lou the crowd? Yeah. And then there's always the guy that goes, they're not saying boo, they're saying Lou, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. His nickname was Glue, uh-huh. Phil. So Phil would knock a sketch out of the park that was nothing on paper. Right. He made it better than written right. by a thousand times. I put him in everything I could. Yeah. And then the whole, you know, during the read-through, all 400 people would go, Glue, Glue. <laughs> and it was my job to go, they're not saying boo. They're saying glue. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Another Phil Hartman extravaganza. So you were hired as a writer and performer? Uh, feature performer. And writer. Yeah. So when I got here, I had no idea. Is that why Dennis was, was on you? He was looking for material? No, he's just... He, he was just, just busting balls. Just busting balls. He's yeah. the new guy. Yeah, I yeah, got it. I've yeah. been the new guy so many times that yeah. you just go, yeah, I'm yeah, the new guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're an idiot. You're right. I'm the biggest idiot that ever was. As Lauren says, it's the court of the Borges. If somebody offers you a drink, check their hands to see if they have a poison ring. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> be wary of the first person that comes up to you that wants to be your friend. They're ultimately going to be your enemy. Really? Yeah. He said that? Yeah. So he knows what's going on. Oh, God. He knows everything. <laughs> but I, he didn't. when I first got hired, I didn't get an office. So yeah. my office was I was cross-legged on my coat yeah. by the elevator bank. Yeah. And he would come in and he'd say, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm on the show. Right. Don't have an office? Uh, no. Should get one. I'd like one. 
should ask. Um, who would I ask? Well, someone. Someone will get you an office. Just don't, don't hang out by the elevator bank. It's weird. So I'd go, okay, and I'd say, uh, Lauren says I should get an office. And he goes, no, no, there's no offices. And so he kept running into me. He goes, do, do you have a security badge? <laughs> so it was a keep bit. it out. <laughs> it I, I guess it was a bit, but I thought he had no idea who I was. Um, Until the third show, and I did Wayne's World. I did um, You Mock Me, which is an Al Franken sketch. Yeah. Then I wasn't on the show for the second show, and I thought I was going to get fired. Then I wrote Wayne's World. When I wrote Wayne's World, um, it was a sketch I had done on Canadian TV um, on a show called It's Only Rock and Roll. And it was kind of my big character, you know? So I wrote it on a yellow pad, and I wrote it till about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I put it on the big pile of submissions. And uh, that the next morning, the secretaries type them up, and they make the, the packs of scripts that you read at the read-through table. You have to hand it in by noon. So I was there at 4 o'clock in the morning. I just handed it in. One of the senior writers came in and went to the pile and started looking at people's scripts, which, as a Canadian, I was like, you can't look at the pile. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The pile. You know, he's looking at the big board. So he looks through the scripts, and then he picks out mine, because mine was the only one that was on yellow pad, and written like a serial killer. It's right. a little handwriting. And he went, is this yours? And he read it, read it, read it, and he took it off the pile and put it on the read-through table some 15 feet away. And I thought, what, what just happened? Like, I didn't, like, I was only being there for three days. I didn't even know where to eat my lunch. Yeah. It's one of those things. Right. Like, hey, fellas, do you eat your lunch at home? Yeah. Do you, does, the, does the wife make your lunch? Does everyone no go idea. out to lunch together? Yeah, yeah what's the deal? Yeah. yeah. What were those prices down in the cafeteria? But I guess they got you in over, guys, where are you going? <laughs> guys, wait up. Yeah. I had nothing, right? Yeah. Another writer comes in who had obviously spoken to the first writer, goes to the table, reads it, and says, oh, man, you're not going to hand this in, are you? It sucks. It sucks. And he throws it on the floor. Yeah. It's 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. And I'm like, this is my big sketch. I'm dead. Yeah. And I had that kind of like going to cry, going to maybe crap my pants. Yeah, yeah. I want my dad to come pick me up. You know, that (laughs) horrible thing. Yeah. And something just reached back to the scruff of my neck, lifted me up, pulled me over to my sketch, I put the staple back in and put it on the pile and walked home. And it was like cold, it was like April, so yeah. it hadn't quite locked into warm yet, and a light rain was falling, and I was just like, well, all I can do is try. Like, I, you know, maybe it didn't work out and whatever, and I'm sure Ben will be fine, he's really funny, and you know. Right. And I was just like, these guys are so awesome. Dana Carvey is a fantastic comedian. Yeah. I mean, the power. You, you, when you're working with him, you feel this jet engine of, of talent yeah. coming off of him. It so raises your game. Yeah. So everything's real estate. The next morning, I, I, I got two hours sleep. I walk in. I, I want to die. And I look to see where my sketch is. And it's the second to last sketch. Mm-hmm. Which means by then, Lauren is eating food as he does the stage directions. So to be like, ah, Wayne's World. And so it kills your sketch. Everybody wants to go home because it's 40 sketches. Everybody has, you know, when you're like a a guy on the show, you're sketched four. And when you're a stupid new guy from Nowheresville, sketch 39. So I just went, you know what, Myers, just don't give up. 
just go down swinging, dude. Go down swinging. Just, just do it up. So we got to the sketch. He goes, Wayne's World. Lauren looks around. He goes, do we really want to read it? And I went in my hand. I went, hell yeah. <laughs> this, as a joke. Yeah. And then he looked up at me and sort of like, mm-hmm. be ready. You know, this table will kill you. Mm-hmm. Right? He said that? He looked at me like that. Okay. And I went like that. And I read it. And it killed. Yeah. It killed. Yeah. It killed. And Lauren got this delighted look on his face. <laughs> Writers back there were like, oh, no. <laughs> it killed. Yeah. And then it got in the show. I had no idea what to do. Third show. Yeah. And it killed. Killed. And that was the birth of a, yeah. the Mike Myers career. And I was on my, my office was my sketch being on at five to one, the last sketch. Mm-hmm. So all of my sketches started at five to one and moved earlier in the show because the ratings by five to one are absolutely nothing. But I thought it played really well in, in the house. And, but on Monday, because the crew is fantastic on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. They're the nicest people in the world. They've seen everything. They're the least jaded people in the world. Uh-huh. And they were like, wow, that sketch is great. That Wayne's world. Are you going to do another one? I said, I don't know. Should I? He went, yeah. You didn't hear people doing the Wayne's world song? He goes, I was on the train and all these kids were doing the Wayne's world song. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and so then I was walking and Lauren said, um, you going to do another world? Already it was world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, shortened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, a Wayne's world? Yeah, world. You're going to do another world? Uh, should I? Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. And I got in. So he and it saw got it. higher and higher in the show. So he, he saw it as a hit. He knew it. I guess, but, you know, he, his cards are close to his chest. Dude, you just... Always? Always. And so in the second, third, second or third season, it was Wayne's World with um, Aerosmith and Tom Hanks. And uh, it had played well in read-through. And... Uh, killed at dress but for some reason I didn't think it killed and I went into a plummetation and Dennis Miller I just started crying I thought I said I blew it this is my big chance I blew it it sucked and didn't and I heard it since and I was like what are you a lunatic it played great I just couldn't hear it for some reason I just didn't think the audience was buying it and the sketch was nine minutes long it's the longest sketch ever mm-hmm. there's never been a nine minute sketch on right. the show right but Lauren wasn't making me cut it. You know, usually they go, you know, uh, your sketch is in. It's a five-page sketch. If you can take three pages out, <laughs> it's like right. uh, what? <laughs> yeah. There's no sketch, <laughs> yeah. but you do it. Yeah, you have to do it. It's sure. broadcast news, right. and the lady sits there with a stopwatch, and you go through and you do all this stuff. So I'm in there, and I started to cry. And I, they have a dresser who dresses you because it's. There's no time between commercials. And this is your third season already. I mean, my like- third season. I just thought I was getting fired. It's just one of those crazy things. And, and um, you know, people always say, you know, being a successful or a public person is ego. Uh-huh. It's mostly ego death. You mostly feel like you put, you're you waiting you, for the other shoe to drop. Well, there's that, too. I mean, yeah. that's certainly how I've grown up. It's a little bit like putting your penis on the table and someone saying, that looks like a penis, only smaller. The scrutiny isn't ego boosting. You but know? also it seems that there, there was a self-scrutiny. There was some sort of inner thing that made you like that's how you must drive yourself to that perfectionism or that moment where you can't you no longer can tell if something is really working you just want it to be good right you go it's a a lot to ask but at that moment you couldn't trust yourself i i I think that the monitor foldback wasn't switched on and Uh i couldn't hear it that's what i think happened 
Oh, so it was a technical problem. I think ultimately okay. in the end. It wasn't in your head. To, well, it was to the extent that it, I was seeing laughs. I just wasn't feeling them. Okay. And one of the joys of Saturday Night Live is just that feeling, dude. Sure. Of being shot out of a cannon. Yeah, yeah. And it's live. Yeah. And, you know, I had like my best friend had came to see the show once up from Toronto. And I said, hey, did you get in all right? And it's like 10 seconds to the show, live show. Yeah. And he went, shut up. Don't talk to me, asshole. Shut up. <laughs> Five seconds. I said, I know, but there's a key that was left for you. Two seconds. He goes, shut up. Right? <laughs> Wayne's World. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, after the show, I came up to him. I said, what's that? Amazing. Punch me in the face. Said, you ever do that to me again? He said, I shot my pants, you asshole. <laughs> and um, so, so what happened? So, so Miller so says what? Miller comes and goes, Mikey, I've been on this show for... Eight years, babe. I haven't seen love like that. And then he's, I, he goes, you're crying? Oh, so you're one of those self-torturing weirdos. I get it, babe. Yeah, do yourself and all of us a favor and get over that quick. It killed. Don't be an asshole. Got it together, and I did it for dress, and it was nine minutes and 22 seconds. Right before Dana and I were about to go out, Lauren came out with a glass of wine, and we set up, and by then, just us showing up got, like, cheers and stomps from the crowd, which is so unimaginable. Because, I, again, I thought you'd have to have grown up in my house to get right. almost everything I did. You know? Yeah. And it was like, you know, ah! And Lauren comes out, and it's like 10 seconds, and Lauren goes, don't milk it, and walks away. And I thought I was in trouble. And Dana just goes like this, and hits me on the arm, and just goes, you know, <laughs> fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> and we did it. And it went nine, nine minutes in dress, nine minutes and 22 seconds. Uh-huh. And Dana started to milk it uh-huh. because he was told not to. Right. And that's why I love Dana Carvey. You guys still talk? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. He's the most fun and most relaxed performer. Yeah. I've been like 4,000, no, it was 20,000 people in Chicago for Wayne's World Rally. And we would do the, you know, the joke, or, you know, he'd do like, I think I'm going to hurl, right? It was one of those things where you just basically do the catchphrases. And then we're like, and under it, Dana's going, should we eat at the hotel or find a whole conversation? I'm doing this to him. No, shut up. Shut up. We're on stage. He goes, you know, they have a, they have a gym here, dude. They have a gym. <laughs> they're, they're under just, the laugh. Yeah. It's like being under a, a wave. That's wild. And then he could feel it coming, and then yeah. he'd be like, then the next line. And I had to look at him going, you're making me nervous. <laughs> but he's so relaxed on stage. That's And great. he has that glint. Yeah, he has he that does fun definitely. glint. Yeah, he in does. His eyes. Yes, you never have to worry about Dana. Yeah, so that was that really the first major franchise that came out of SNL. Well, one might argue the Blues Brothers. Right. Okay. Um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it was. I don't know. You went on to write both movies, mm-hmm. and Lauren produced them. Yeah. And your relationship with Lauren did it get more? Uh, candid more intimate i mean as you started to earn well I, I have such respect for lauren like truly truly is a canadian hero this is a man who i just i i guess it's how i was brought up but you know he's my boss you know um and that's how i feel about the audience by the way you know they're my boss you know um they pay my bills and they are kind enough to come see what i do and and you know if i'm out and they want to come up and take a photograph, you have to be nice to your boss. You sure. Mean? And yeah. so, yeah, absolutely, of course. And you still have a relationship with Lauren? Yeah, fantastic. I have, I have dinner with him every two months. Really? He's so... When Lauren had kids, he turned into everybody's grandfather. Uh-huh. And, and he was really on me to have kids. It was his big thing. He goes, you know, it's all good. You won't 
regret one moment of it. It's all great. And he had when he was like 60, right? Yeah. And I had a kid when I was 48, uh-huh. my first one. And uh, then I just had one in April. So and it's amazing. It's fantastic, dude. So you did uh, the Austin Powers movies, which you also wrote. So you're kind of a, you know, you're an industry. Well, I don't feel that way. Well, all right. But, 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 it, but I'm did. just saying, when I look back now, yeah. And you, but I've always felt like an outsider. Like I've never felt like I was never on any power. Like I was on powerless, but I was never like, like you weren't like, you weren't playing the game. You were doing your own thing. But I didn't know that there was a game. Right, like, right. like I, that's not right. My I'm more, like you know Paul Myers, right. my brother. Like we're those people. We're no, no. I get it. I know, get it. But you were you were a hard worker by an Instagram right and a Garage Band that we've made yeah. than anything. You know? Right. Yeah. No, I get that. Now, where do you, how do you assess the the sort of rumors of you being difficult? Well, are I think, you difficult? I I'm I am. A quality control person of stuff that I've created, uh-huh. and one of the hardest things. I actually, I'm really, really super glad you asked me that question because it's something that I've never, I've never been in a, in a context, a safe context, to talk to somebody who also makes things yeah. to understand the misperception. Uh-huh. Um, when you write and you create, and you're the owner of something the system is geared to have the actor acts and the director directs right. and the producer produces but when you're doing all of those things at once they're really you know it's like Woody Allen it's uh, you know Steve Martin uh, Chaplin Keaton mm-hmm. um, Sasha Baron Cohen uh you know Ben Stiller that's the world that you're in yeah and as Lauren says nobody's going to care about your material as much as you are and also no one's going to care about your privacy or your money or your children right. as much as you're going to is right. another thing that Lauren always says and what I learned at Saturday Night Live was you have to protect your material and I am I am I've never I never attack anybody but I will defend myself when they're going after the freshness of my material. And I fight for the fresh. Now, there are some people... And what do you mean by freshness exactly? Comedy where comedy hadn't existed before. So right. to give an example of something that I fought very, very hard for, uh-huh. and it was my first movie, was Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World. They wanted Guns N' Roses. And Guns N' Roses were very, very popular. They're fantastic. Oh, band. yeah, they were trying to... You talked about that. Where did I hear about that? Was that in the Sheps documentary? Did you talk about that? No, that was a different thing. They wanted, um, I wanted 18 in Schools Out. Okay, right, right, right. From Alice Cooper. Right, okay. Because that's what I knew, like, right. from my thing. So you had to fight for Bohemian Rhapsody because the industry wanted you to showcase. Yeah, because at that time, Queen had, uh, they were somewhat, not by me, of course, and by true, true hardcore music fans, but the public had sort of forgotten about him a little yeah. bit. Freddie had gotten sick. The last time we had seen them was on Live Aid. And then there was a few albums afterwards where they were sort of straying away from their arena rock yeah. roots. But I always loved Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, I great. thought it was yeah. a masterpiece. And so I fought really, really hard for it. And at one point I said to everybody, well, I'm out. I don't want to make this movie. It's not Bohemian Rhapsody. And they were like, who the f*** are you? Yeah. I said, I'm somebody that, that wants to do that movie. That's the movie I want to do. <laughs> You know what I mean? They're like, you've never done a movie? You're going to quit even though you've never done a movie? I yeah. go, 
but I don't want to do that other movie. I want to do this movie. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah. You know? And the song went to number one again. Yeah, because and, of the movie. Yes. Yeah. And I don't, think it, I don't think any song has done that, where it goes to number one or exceeds its original sales. Mm-hmm. That's not me being Nostradamus. That's about me just going, what do I want to see? What, what movie would I want to see? I would want to see the movie where it's Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, also because that beat, mm. when you guys all start... That beat, comedically, yes. is profoundly memorable. And it was not going to work with, with no. any other song. It wasn't. And, and that was the beat. I, th- that's what I said to them. I said, I love Guns N' Roses. I just don't happen to have a joke for them. Right. You know what I mean? Because that was the beat, yeah. right? It was like... And, you know, cut to like five years ago, I went to a casino in Europe... And, and it was an escalator to get into the casino. Somebody put on Bohemian Rhapsody, and it was 8,000 people in this casino floor. And when it kicks into gang, it was 8,000 people in Europe doing the headbanging thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, look what you did. Jesus. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> now, do I regret uh, really making a fuss and putting my foot down for something that I created from Molecule One? I did an audition for Wayne's World. There was one day there wasn't Wayne's World, and then another day there was, and I created it. You know what I mean? I wrote it. That was my vision. That was my childhood in Toronto, in Mm -hmm. Scarborough, Ontario. My brother had a a Toyota that had a vomit stain on the side of it. Uh We were all given a Galileo. You know, Galileo, you didn't take somebody's Galileo. Right. Right? And that's what it was. That was what the no money fun, a couple of idiots who were trying to be cool... And Garth thinks that Wayne is cool, and Wayne is so obviously not cool. And that's what this, that, that's, I wanted to maintain that sweetness. And yeah. I thought that song, I, I also wanted to take a page out of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is you're not sure if it's the 50s or if it's the 80s, you know what I mean? Because that's the designer childhood. That character is very much like um, Howdy Doody, and it's played by a fully grown man. I was 30 at the time, playing an indeterminate aged teenager mm-hmm. and it was 1991 that we shot it with music and a car from 1974 the amc pacer so you weren't quite sure what yeah, year this timeless. was i was trying to make an immaculate right. universe it truly was wayne's world if you will right and so i fought very very hard for that and that got you that reputation yeah i mean and you know the other thing that got me reputation was I was working on So I Married an Axe Murderer and it went over and I was shooting it in the uh, in the uh, hiatus and uh, then there was like oh he's too big to come back to the show and I was like I didn't make the movie go over like that's the you know it happens I was telling you guys exactly when my movie's done and it went three weeks over and I missed I think I missed five shows and Lauren got very, very mad. Even after Wayne's World, he got mad. Especially after Wayne's World, he got mad. <laughs> <laughs> he got very mad. Yeah. And, and I didn't blame him, but there was nothing I could do about it. And how did that reconcile? Um, he's Lauren Michaels, you know. Yeah. He's a Canadian hero, and... and I just we just kept talking, kept seeing each other and stuff, you know. <laughs> Eventually, it just sorted itself. Well, out. I, I stayed on the show for another four seasons. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, he so, must have respected it somehow. He's very respectful to me. Yeah, yeah, and he and and you know, 
I've always challenged him. You know, like he'll say stuff and and if I think it's like something like, uh, well, you know, the Maginot line did its job or something like that. And I'll say, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a symbol of, of false complacency. This was an actual conversation. The, the conversations we have are all of things like that. Yeah. Talking about <laughs> empire. And <laughs> but you would challenge him and... If I thought something was wrong. You but, know? Not about, but not about the show necessarily. Uh, I challenged him a couple times. I, I was very, very upset when Nancy Kerrigan hosted. I really got in his face about it. I didn't think she should be a host. This is after the Tanya Harding yeah. thing. Um, I think getting back to the difficult thing, the, what people don't know is I actually write and create, and produce, and own the things that I do. And so when I call up the marketing department, they go, that's not in the movie star handbook. You're not supposed to call up the marketing department. And I go, should I, what should I do? <laughs> I don't know what to do because I'm the producer and I'm the creator and owner of this thing that I wrote. And uh, that's kind of what happens. And I, I, have no, I, I have not one regret. I'm glad I fought for Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, I'm they, glad I did Austin Powers because they, they I did Austin Powers. They, the first screening of Austin Powers, they had a hundred respondees. Hands up, who knows James Bond? Only two hands went up. And then they said, oh, well, we're going to have to do massive rewrites and do this, that, and the other. I said, no, don't release the film. That's the film. Yeah. That's the film, you know. And it worked, right? That's what I hear. <laughs> this is this thing I'm doing with Jimmy Fallon lately. This uh, false modesty guy. Yeah. You tell me. Yeah. That's the catchphrase. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. You tell me. <laughs> but but th that's interesting because that sort of plays into the idea that you, you know, even seeing yourself as an outsider or seeing yourself as a humble guy who's just doing his work yeah. is that by committing to your work yeah. you, it, within the industry itself, you become that. And, 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 and that's going to be resented. And I, uh, that's fine. It's my job as an artist to be misunderstood. And I would rather fight for the audience to have a good experience. And, and, and there are some people... I've met thousands of people in the industry who are fantastic. Here's an example. Molly Thompson at A&E with the Supermensch movie. Fantastic. Fantastic uh, executive who supported me and backed this movie 110%. Well, it's interesting because what you've succeeded in doing and is... And Tom that, Quinn at Radius supports us as well. It, what you've done that I think is unique is that, I don't, like you said just a minute ago, I don't think people really understand mm. that to, to have the type of control you did and the commitment to mm. the work that you do mm. is, is an artist's job. And very yeah. few people get that freedom to do that. And when you have such a, a powerful mainstream appeal... Mm. Which is my, the mo nobody was more surprised than me. I truly, right. truly thought. But, but that's a reality. Yeah, and so, so when you're in that money game, hmm. you know, the people that run that money game think they know things. Right. And they don't. They're, no. they're usually frightened. And you know, who else doesn't know yeah. things is me. Right. But I do know what I want to see. Right. And I do know that you can't rip the audience off. You must. It's a lot to ask of people to sit in the dark with strangers plus the price of the ticket, plus right. popcorn, plus Diet Coke, and plus what, parking. Well, no, I, well, I think that explains it. Do you feel, you feel good about that explanation? I do. Well, good. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so the Shrek thing, that was originally Farley's thing. Yeah, it's weird. And, and he died. And I guessed it right. They weren't going to tell me. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I, I was working on it, and then I looked at the maquette of, of Shrek, you know, the little model that yeah. they make the clay model yeah yeah then they and i said 
was this offered to Farley? <laughs> they were like, the agent and manager and the yeah. executives were like, no, I don't know, what are you talking about? <laughs> Chris Farley? Yeah, the guy that just died. Yeah. I, how so? I said, well, it looks like Chris Farley. <laughs> They're like, no, I don't. First of all, it's going to change. Yeah. First yeah. of all, it's going to change because it's you. Yeah. You know. Were you upset about that? Uh, I, I was upset to the fact that I wasn't told that before. Right up front. Because you'd actually laid down tracks for it, right? Like that's what I hear now. Yeah, I didn't know that till about two years ago. Huh? That's wild. Isn't that wild? And when you when you is it true that when you did the first movie that you you went back and redid the whole movie? Yes. Here's one of the fascinating um, that sort of uh, Paul Bunyan esque lore that is attached to you. Yeah. I mean, you've we've hung out now. Yeah. You know, the Paul Bunyan. Ness that yeah. comes my way is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. You know? Right. Well, what was the Paul Bunyan-ness around that? Well, that it cost millions to redo. But how is that possible? It it's didn't. just voice. It didn't. No. It, uh, what it meant is instead of me going in for 10 sessions, I went in for 20 sessions. I got paid the same. <laughs> and it, by the time I, when I, I tried it as uh, Lothar the Hill People, uh-huh. then I tried it with a thick Canadian accent, and then I realized that it's a Eurocentric art form. Eddie is inverting it by having an african-american voice and yeah. doing a fantastic job um john lithgow is is english mm-hmm. you, well mid-atlantic mm-hmm. but englishy englishy king and if it is eurocentric what shape on the horizon can i do and i thought well scottish people are fantastic at being super happy and then getting super mad so it's yeah. like oh i love you thank you for coming over but if you ever come in here with those shoes i'll kill you yeah 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 and i thought that's an ogre and they're also working people. It was all about class, Shrek. Yeah. You know, the fairy tale heroes are are upper class, and the ogres are lower class. You know, and I thought the Scottish is a very working class accent, and because my mom used to read books to me um, when we'd go to the bookmobile, she's British, right? She would read in all the different dialects. Oh, okay. And one of them was Scottish. And that's the energy I wanted to tap into, was to just make it that same yummy. I read my kids' books now, which yeah. is fantastic. And so I just wanted to tap into that energy. Oh, that's great. Now, uh, Jeffrey was like, Scottish, I'm not so sure about it, blah, 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 blah. Steven Spielberg sent me a letter yeah. that I have framed right. saying, Dear Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to redo it. You're absolutely right. The Scottish ogre is fantastic thank you so much for caring wow <laughs> and i'm like fantastic it's, yeah he's yeah, a fantastic yeah. guy yeah. and he's such well that's such an artist he's just so loves artists he loves making things yeah and uh and the the, the historic element that you know the the mathematics of why you went that way is pretty astounding well i just thought that's I can do right. I can do angry and vulnerable at the same time with, with Scottish, That's which is great. what an ogre is. Yeah. You know, they're they're in a lot of pain. Ogres, you know. That's great, and it's been an amazing. Uh, it's got a trip star on the Walk of Fame, and yeah. now when people go to that world, yeah. they have Scottish accents, like How to Train Your Dragon. Uh-huh. But there was a lot of resistance to it, huh. and I just went. That's how I see it. Like, I'm and not, it worked. It made, it worked. It paid off beautifully. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a great thing. Thank you. I'm very happy with how it turned out. <laughs> All right, so now let's get up to speed with, yes. like, because um, when we were emailing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, aside from the pictures of your new daughter, which uh, was very exciting to me, even though we knew each other one email exchange, I got, <laughs> I got the pictures. 
That's but what happens when you're dad. I know, yeah. It's, it's like, great. You is, he, my is your third kid? Second. Second. Yeah. So you have Spike and the daughter. Spike and Sunday, yeah. Um, that what, When we started talking about Supermensch in this documentary about Chef Gordon, which I watched, uh, I had no idea who that guy was. Right. And uh, he's a very interesting character. He's, mm-hmm. an inter- he's a character that is both light and dark. Yes. And, and it's quite a journey. He's an ethical hedonist and a progressive capitalist. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I had no idea who he was. But like, the tone of your commitment to this project was like, this is what I always wanted to do. It is. Yeah, I wanted to How do so? A I've, documentary about a music manager. I, I met him on the set of Wayne's World in 1991. With and Alice? With Alice Cooper. He's yeah. Alice Cooper's manager. I'd never been in a movie, mm-hmm. let alone written and created a movie, playing the eponymous character. And uh, I'd never even been on a movie studio. And so it's my first time on a movie studio. I walked through New York Town, and I walked through past the Jaws tank and all that stuff. And then I go and I meet this rock and roll manager. He's got a toilet bowl haircut with a ponytail, gray ponytail, and a satin tour jacket. And I was like, ugh. And I was a punk you're, rocker, And you were sort of like, did I create this character? Well, well Lauren turns to me, again, in that way. You're, you yeah. know, talking about owning the material and no one's going to fight for your material. Lauren says, you have a problem with your movie. Um, and this was the... Uh, Alice doesn't want to do 18 and school's out. And you're going to talk to his manager. I'm like, his manager. And so, like I said, I go across the studio a lot and I meet <laughs> Shep Gordon. Yeah. And he comes in and he's got a New York accent. He talks like this. Yeah. Very, very deep. Yeah. Very, very calm. And so I'm, I'm talking to him and he's nice and stuff. And he goes, um, he goes, I know you won 18 and school's out in the movie, but how about something from the new album? And I said, uh, how about no, right? Because I thought, no, I don't want something from the new album. He goes, he goes, I would hate for you to say no when you've never heard the song. And he played the song, and I liked the song. Yeah. But I wanted 18 and School's Out again. Right. And I said, um, well, I'm sorry, I have a real strong vision, and, and that's what it is. And he goes, listen, <laughs> Alice is only going to be on stage performing for eight seconds. If you put... 18 of school's out in the end credits people are going to think that's the song that they were playing they're not going to remember and I was like he's right <laughs> and he was so nice about it I said uh, yeah I still want 18 of school's yeah. out and he says I also happen to know you start shooting in two weeks and you don't have a choice <laughs> I said that is also true I said alright he goes you're not going to regret it we're going to promote the crap out of it it's going to be a big and it was actually a little bit of a hit and yeah. it was great 18 is in the uh, end credits and I just got a nice vibe from the dude like just being with him I just thought this guy's actually loving his client he's a bit of a rock and roll cliche but so what and he's sweet an honest broker too honest he he made a good deal that was well kept Uh so Alice comes and Alice Cooper does the movie and it's the the part where the you know we're not worthy we're not worthy oh yeah 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 um, and one of the things I had fought for was the Alice Cooper thing of saying Millie okay, Milwaukee is actually, you know, actually they had the first communist mayor, that whole thing. Yeah. They were like, it's a teen movie. And I go, yeah, but they'll get the joke. Yeah, they'll, yeah. You know, they'll get the joke. Fought hard for that. Alice knocked it out of the park, so protected that joke. So I was really, really grateful because he really knocked it out of the park. He's a really funny comedy actor, yeah. Alice. He's really well, good. Well, that's what he does. Exactly, it is. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's burlesque. Yeah. And, um, and so 
I go to Hawaii after the movies. And my dad died, uh, but the movie's a giant hit. My life has changed. I went to Hawaii. I could never go to Hawaii during my when my dad was alive because he was angry with the Hawaiians for killing Captain Cook in 1780. Seriously? It's like, they bloody murdered him. Yeah. The Hawaiians. Poi eating. Oh, really? Grass skirt wearing. He, he held yeah. that? Yeah, he oh. held a grudge because yeah. they bloody murdered him in his sleep. <laughs> bloody Hawaiians. <laughs> and I thought about that. I felt like a traitor the whole time I'm there. It's like, they did murder Captain Cook. Wait a minute. I don't care. I was born in Canada. What the hell? So I go and I... And I, I had an assumed name, you know. I, I was under Pierre Trudeau was my name. So I, um, I thought it was Paul Myers calling through because he got right through because he, he knew. I gave him my fake name, yeah. the hotel name. And it's like, hi, uh, is, this, uh, is this Mike? And I thought, okay, Paul, what's up? Right? He goes, no, it's Shep. I thought, oh, Shep. Shep? Shep Gordon, Al Scooper's manager. He goes, you want to go to a luau? With uh, Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Arnold and Sly, like names like. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. He goes, I said, uh, I, how do I get to your house? He goes, I'm in the lobby. <laughs> Come on, I'll, I'll drive you. So I went over there and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Whoopi Goldberg. It was fantastic. It was like Madame Tussauds. I yeah. couldn't believe it, but it was a luau. Yeah. So there's like. At Chef's know, house. At Chef's house. Yeah. And it was like. Yeah. There's palms and all this stuff. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I ate like a pig out of the ground. Uh -huh. And uh, he was just nice to everybody, including like the people that were working it. He was nice too, which meant a lot to me that he was nice to working people. And it wasn't just that he was nice to celebrities. He was nice to everybody. Like, uh -huh. saw them, looked them in the eye, thanked them. Yeah. He just had this lovely way. And he said, just always stay at my house. So I went another time. And then he was like, stay in my house. And I thought, well, people say that, you know. And then I got hit with a second wave of sadness uh, of my father's. How many years later? It's a good question, dude. I can't quite remember. Mm-hmm. It was a few years back. Oh, okay. So then you decided you're going to go to Hawaii. I went to uh, Hawaii and stayed at his house. And I said, you know, is this a real offer? He said, yeah, of course. My door is always open. You can stay anytime. I said, well, I'm going to stay for a week. He goes, okay, is everything good? And then I said, yeah. But he didn't ask me about it anymore. He just said, I said, aren't you curious? And he goes, no. No, I figured you'd tell me if something was going on. Yeah, I'm here to listen if you want to, but also... You know, he goes, are you eating? Are you eating well? And then he made me meals. Like, he made me nutritious meals with, <laughs> yeah. with greens, you uh -huh, know, uh -huh. cooler greens. And uh -huh. he said, you're not exercising. I'm concerned. You should swim in the ocean. I'm going to get you a yoga gal. Yoga person came over. And I, he, I was like a baby chick that had fallen out of the nest. And he raised me. And I was there for two months. Really? And every night I would ask him about a different celebrity. He had another story. So uh -huh. I'd say, well, what about Charlie Chaplin? He goes... Met him at the Savoy. I had lunch with him. I'm like, you did? He goes, yeah. Crazy story connected to uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, every time he saw a chaplain, he would faint. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah. So I'm backstage with Alice. Michael Jackson comes, and I'm playing at a theater in London that Charlie Chaplin used to play. Michael Jackson comes backstage, loved Alice's show, because they're really in the same business. Yeah. Sees the picture of Charlie Chaplin. Bam! Hits the floor. <laughs> passes out. <laughs> he felt that he was Charlie Chaplin in another life. <laughs> and if you look at the moonwalk and the way the tramp walks, there's a real similarity. 
It's like this crazy, like, yeah, so yeah. I'm sitting there, I'm riveted. I'm keeping him up. Like, this dude goes to bed early. Yeah. I mean, he's an ethical hedonist, but he goes to bed early. He gets up with the sun. He just loves Maui. Like, yeah. that's him plugging in. And I said to him, on the first time I went over to the Luau, I said, I want to do a movie about you. Because I truly, truly thought I was going to be Cassavetes. I thought I was going to make documentaries and, and, and do improvised movies. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, and then if I was lucky and to have parts in movies, th- that money would go towards improvised movies. You know what I mean? Which I still might do. Well, you, you know? Yeah, you, I, I you can. Know. I can. I just I haven't got around to it. And yeah. My latest thing has been this documentary. It's taken me two years. And then I had two kids in two yeah, years. You know? right. So that's what I've been doing mostly. And, um, and writing other things. I'm always writing something. I think that the interesting thing about the movie, one of the interesting things is that that business mm-hmm. is so sort of like you, you, you just even the best of them are, are usually called scumbags. Right. And and, you know, you found this guy who is one of the best of them mm. and is a real straight shooter and a decent human and being. loves artists. Yeah. And he wants to see, he wants the quirk. Yeah. So my career has been about protecting the quirk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And having to steadfastly protect the quirk of what I do, you know, Mm -hmm. that is one of the greatest things that uh, Jerry Seinfeld ever said about my stuff. And that is you managed to break all rules of American parody. You parodied something that nobody knew in both Dieter and in um, Uh uh, Austin Powers Uh and uh, high praise indeed. And Steve Martin had said comedy where comedy hadn't existed before, which is also high praise Two very, very generous, fantastic comedians. And to meet somebody that is so protective of a quirky artist like Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. who doesn't say, hey, tone it down. He says, heighten and explore. He turns to Luther Vandross and protects what it is he does. And Teddy Pendergrass, he finds the essence of the attraction between the artist and the audience and protects it like a, like a mama bear and creates a playground for these people to thrive and grow. And he monetizes in ways that traditional show business won't monetize such quirkiness. Mm-hmm. That's the movie I wanted to make. That's the man I wanted to support. And that's the man I want young people who are starting out now who think they have to go on talent shows to know that you don't have to go on talent shows. You don't need to be discovered. But should you run into a Lamaze birth coach who is an artist about protecting artists, but his canvases are Christosized, if you meet those people, like David Geffen, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cling them to your breast and protect them and, and give them the love that they're giving you. And that's what I wanted to do for Shep. I've seen him be so lovely. for so I couldn't even put the amount of lovely things he's done for people. He did something, he did something for the band Squeeze that's so fantastic. He just completely it's not helped in the movie. Them out. No, didn't make it into the movie. What was that? He got, he, he got them uh, a whole new... Um, deal for their catalog and he didn't charge them he just did it because he went you know that band squeeze i think they're so fantastic do you know they got such a crappy deal and somebody had called him and said can you do me a, uh i'm calling in a coupon a favor he yeah. has these thing called coupons yeah. he does stuff for people occasionally he'll call in a coupon but mostly he you know people call a coupon to each other you yeah. know what I mean in yeah. a fair yeah. way yeah. and he said this coupon was called and said listen I, I'm working with Squeeze and I want them to get a better deal on their catalog of music which is fantastic I'm a huge Squeeze fan yeah it's great stuff and he said yeah I think they're great I'll do it and he set them up 
got the thing, and then turned to them and said, uh, listen, you don't want me as your manager. I'm not going to really help you, but I did do this. And they said, that's great. So what are you charging? He says, nothing. You guys are great. You should, you should, there should be a squeeze in the world. Uh-huh. That's sweet. He wouldn't let me put it in the movie. Huh. But I'm telling you now, people. Yeah. Because that's the kind of guy. He loves artists. He wants to protect the quirk. Uh-huh. He doesn't try and make people palatable. What I wanted to talk about in the film, as a cautionary tale to young artists starting out, which is that, you know, being in the public eye, you know, you want it to be celebrated for doing things, not just for the sake of being a celebrity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that it is a funhouse mirror distortion of the world. Um, and I just, there's, Shep himself has had such, such an amazingly external experience in the world that there wasn't much time left for an intimate experience. And that was the most controversial thing I put into the movie because I said, Shep, I want to do a movie about you. I didn't really know until the movie was starting that that's, that's the cautionary tale. That's the be careful for what you wish for when it comes to a public life because you can miss an intimate private life and that spoke to you that spoke to me yeah. a man who had babies of 48 exactly yeah so you know the Beatles said all our songs are autobiographical mm-hmm. even if they didn't happen to us you know yeah. that's kind of the thing that spoke to me that's been the imperative for 20 years for me hounding him to say yes and then he finally said yes which is fantastic it's been the most fantastic satisfying journey the last two years because I just made it for me then A&E said, yeah, we'll buy it. And then I took it to the Toronto Film Festival, and Radio said, sure, we'll distribute it. And here we are. So it's been fantastic. And sitting in a house with people, just you know, laughing, crying, being so, quiet, well, it's so, a fantastic experience. So you're basically saying that, that, that finally you've been able to engage in life in terms of uh, the things that are supposed to bring human beings you know, joy and and, and a pace that yeah. is sort of embracing and interactive and human and not, you yeah. know, just in, in letting it relax. Yeah, hopefully. I want, I also, the quest for both Shep and I and my brother Paul has been sanctuary. And somebody very wise once said to me, don't chase the high, follow the heart, you know, mm. and that we think that we want to have an external experience, but what we want is sanctuary within our own skull, you know, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what this movie is about. I mean, it's, it's, you, you have to have a happy hearth and home, but you can also change the world, you know? Yeah. I gotta, I gotta work on that. (laughs) It was great talking to you, man. (laughs) Great talking to you. Thank you. How fucking cool is that? What a smart, sweet dude, man. And incredibly talented and and just really sophisticated in the way he thinks about about comedy and and life in general. I I was um, it was great. I was impressed and and uh, and humbled to be to be honest with you to hang out with him for a couple hours. All right, you guys. All right. I think if I practice, I could be a professional musician. But not like a studio musician, but just a guy who can play. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some guys together. I know I say this a lot, but I'm going to do it. 
see, that's the other thing about me is like this thing about like not knowing what to do with myself is that I talk myself out of everything. So, um, fuck, man. Just do it. Just do it. Stop thinking it and talking yourself out of shit. Right? Right? Yeah. Right. Who are you? Boomer lives! Boomer lives!